Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. All right. Uh, Thanks, Pastor Jeff. Let me double down on checking out that display. It's, uh, It's very worth your time. We have a growing tradition of, at the beginning of each new year, preaching specific kinds of sermons. We typically do one on the state of our church, which will be next Sunday. We do one that's about life. That's this Sunday. And then we've done one on uh, Christ's incarnation, which was last Sunday. And so this one is on life. And I want you to both learn to hate death, uh, and especially the taking of innocent life, and to love life, to love the gift of God giving us life. And it all comes from God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. Kids, I want you to turn there because I want to read a lot of that. And I'm going to pause where there's repeated words, and I want you kids to fill in the word. We did this at the dinner table, and it worked out pretty well. It was a bit of a spontaneous thing, and I thought then that this would be helpful because it's a a longer section to read. So I'm going to read all of Genesis 1, and then we'll skip to the middle of Genesis 2 in verse 15. And what I want you to see today is who we are. What are we? What are we for? What are these bodies for? And even what are our parts for? And how does that relate to who God is? So that's what we're going to look at. We are image bearers of God. And there is truth shown here in Genesis 1 and 2 that tells us who God is that is revealed in who we are. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to look at today. So let's begin. You don't have to read out loud along with me, kids. Although if you wanted to do that, go for it. But I'll pause when we hear like the word good or and it was the what day. And then you fill it in with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said that the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called the seas. And God saw that it was. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, in which was their seed, each according to the sign. And God saw that it was, and there was evening, and there was morning the... And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years 
And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the... And God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was... And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on earth. And there was evening and there was morning the... And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was... Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yields, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, right? And it was, and there was evening and there was morning the... All right, now skip on down to verse 15, <clears throat> chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be called or, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. <clears throat> father, give us eyes to see now and ears to hear. May the thoughts of my our minds and the 
meditations of our heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So you can see, right? You can see it right away. What do we learn about God in these verses? What 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 do you see of him? He is a life giver. He is a creator. And he is not at all uh, stingy. It's over and above abundant. He's generous. He generates life. Everything in these verses is for the creation and sustaining of life. The light. What's it for? To continue to generate life. The waters, what is it for? To sustain and continue to generate life. The earth, what's it for? So out of it might come life. All vegetation has seed to continue life. Fruit trees have seed to continue life. Animal life has male and female, each with its kind of seed to continue life. Adam, I'm sure, was greatly discouraged. Yes, not sinfully, when he saw all of the other animals and named them all, and they each had its male and its female. Not him. Something was off. It wasn't good. And then God gave him Eve, and that was good. And man, you know, above all other creatures, is blessed by God uniquely. God speaks to man, tells us in our own ears, who we are. Not any other creature does he do this for. He tells us we're created in his image. He's given us rule over the rest of the creation. In verse 27 of chapter 1, there is this poem, this song that he sings. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. If you could read Hebrew and you would read that, it sings. You'd hear the rhyme. It's beautiful. God is singing over us the goodness and and uh, purpose for which he's made us. God blesses us. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So this world is filled with life. This world is filled with the continuation of abundance of generating life. And then in chapter 2, which is a replay of chapter 1, but it slows way down and focuses specifically in on the man and then the woman. God speaks to the man. He's in loving communion with Adam. And he tells Adam, after the repetition that the kids said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good, there's one thing not good, and it's that Adam is alone. Now that isn't just loneliness. It's that he is, in a sense, incomplete without his complement. And to heighten that before Adam and before us, he parades before Adam all of the other creatures, each complete, each able to generate more of itself according to its kind, but not Adam. Adam names them all, but even though Adam obviously is naming them, we don't see Adam speak until Eve is there. He's Incomplete. He's alone. He doesn't know who he is until he sees himself in her. Her, his help, his mate, his 
companion. And then he rejoices, this at last. Another song. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. One like me. One fit for me. Now I see myself. I know who I am. And then you have this first marriage, this beautiful man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they consummate their marriage in sexual union. They become one flesh. Now this marriage, if you've, you've all gone to weddings and invariably what's the text that's read at a wedding? Ephesians 5, right? Did nobody say that? Ephesians 5. And the, the glory of Ephesians 5 isn't mainly the man and woman being married, but the man and woman being married are a living picture and parable of who God is. Right? Just as the heavens declare the glory of God, just as everything on earth is a living picture of something of God, so the pinnacle of that is a man and a woman being united, revealing That God is a fruitful life-giving God. Christ comes and spends his life to give us eternal life. And the man is supposed to be like him. The man is supposed to use his life, use his body for the creation and sustenance and protection of her life. They are together to generate life just like the Son of God gave himself to give us new life to generate life in us. Marriage is this living parable of the life-giving God. And we see this in Genesis 1 and 2. Who is God? He's the creator. He's the life-giver. God doesn't merely give physical life in love. He gives eternal life through His Son. And so God is the God of life. And in this picture of marriage, in the man and in the woman, together as one flesh, we see that as they generate new life, that is telling you again and again and again that God is the giver of life. Now, kids, you have these little uh, worship bulletin things. What do we, what, is there a title of those? I don't know what they're called. You know what I mean. Kid sermon notes, and you can ask a question on them, which I enjoy. And one of the questions you might think, if you're really, really, really thoughtful, is, before God made all of this, was God a life-giving God? It's a good question to ponder, isn't it? If God is God, and God never changes, how did he give life before he made all of this? Now, if you're really philosophical, then you'll start thinking, well, God is eternal and outside of time, so that question really doesn't make that much sense. But how many of you have heard the term begotten before, kids? Begotten. Where have you heard that? In reference to whom have you heard this term begotten? Jesus, right? He is the only begotten Son of God. What does that word mean? In Psalm 2, verse 7, we read, You are my son. This is the father speaking to his son. You are my son. I have or I am begetting you. That's quoted in Hebrews 1.5. We also 
hear it in John 3. This is my only begotten son. I've given him. What does that mean? It's telling us who God is. God is a father. What is a father? Father is one who generates life. So the way that we talk about it in the church or within the Bible is that the heavenly father has eternally been begetting the son. The son proceeds from the father's eternal generation. I don't know what that means exactly. It's mysterious. But the father has always been an eternally life-giving father. He is generating the son from all time until all time. This doesn't mean that the son is made or created. He is eternal without beginning nor end. But the Father has always been a Father. Again, the Holy Spirit, read in John chapter 15, proceeds from the Father. The way that the church has talked about it in our creeds is that the the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son love each other, and that love is a generating, producing love, the Spirit. God is a fruitful God. He has eternally been that. This is what we have confessed as Christians. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. From all eternity, God has been a life-generating God. You know what He's never done? Contracepted His love. You see where this goes? He's never put a condom on His love. He's never sterilized it. He's never made it impotent. This is all over Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? It's all over his divine nature. He is eternally begetting life abundantly. And we're created in that image. All of creation is made like that, isn't it? What are apple trees supposed to do with their seeds? Well, they got to be careful not to make too many apples, right? You know, it, it, it might be... Um, presumptive of them. It might be too hard on the soil if they have too many other apple trees. They might not be able to provide for all their little apples. No, no, no. They just, what do they do? They make more apples, as many as they can, with as many seeds in them as possible, to make as many apple trees as possible. That's what this life is supposed to be life. We look at God and we see a life-giving God, a generous God, a generating God. And he's made us like him. So that term, Genesis, beginning of life, generating, generous, gender, genital. That root word gen tells us who we are. Tells us even what our parts are for. God made us in his image, male and female, with parts, sexual parts. For what purpose? For what purpose? To make life. To generate life. To love life. To show the truth of who God is. He is not a sterile God. He is not a fruitless, impotent God. He is a God who eternally generates the Son. He is the God from whom proceeds the, His love, the Holy Spirit, from whom bursts forth all life on this earth. And so you have a lot of questions about you, don't you? Kids, as you grow up, you'll have a lot of questions. Who am I? <laughs> 
What am I for? What is this body for? What are these parts for? And the way to answer that is to first consider God and what he's like and the purpose for which he's made you. One of the questions that often comes up in a young man or young woman's life is self-pleasure. Is it sinful to pleasure myself sexually? The only way to answer that question is to ask what those parts are for. What are they for? They're to give life. They're to serve another. And as you serve yourself and make use of those parts just for yourself, then you're beginning to teach yourself to look at others in a certain way, just for me and my pleasure, just for them to use as an object me and my lusts. But it goes back to the principle of who we are and how God made us and how we're created as image. So God has given us this entire world to use and to make use of for his glory and for our good. And as we consider the life-giving God, don't neglect. We can Let's first talk about food. Food serves a purpose for us, right? To sustain our lives. You can't live without food and water. But God not only gives that objective, almost utilitarian use of food, he gives pleasure along with it, right? You, you get to enjoy eating that which sustains life. It's really a good thing. You don't have to just eat as something to sustain life. You get to eat to enjoy what you eat. It tastes good. There's pleasure in it. Now, because of sin, sometimes you can overindulge in the pleasure and so bring harm to the life, right? Some even can get messed up in their minds to think that they want to underindulge in the pleasure and so take from their life. But you have this gift of both food which sustains life and it is a pleasure in doing it. Sex is the same way. Marital sex, sex within marriage, is given for life, to generate life. But there's incredible pleasure with it. Awesome, wonderful pleasure. A pleasure that is meant to bring the man and woman back together and remind them what they're supposed to be together. One, union, compatibility, the pleasure of their maritable companionship seen in this Union. It's a great pleasure. Now, what happens in our sin? We so make a God out of the pleasure that we contracept the life, don't we? We despise the function, the good gift of generating life because we just want the pleasure. That's all. In fact, we do the most wicked thing possible. When the pleasure leads to life, we still want more of the pleasure that we kill the life. We made such a God out of sexual pleasure and made a God just out of the object of others' bodies that when another body is conceived from that pleasure, we despise it and hate it so much that we'll murder it in some of the most barbaric ways possible. Our culture prides itself in being a... um kind culture, humane. We have stopped capital punishment for 
terrible, wicked people because it's inhumane. We, for a long time, sought to figure out how to execute criminals more humanely. But now we think that there's no humane way to do that, and so there's no longer any capital punishment. The only capital punishment anymore in our world is the fruit of sex. They're the only criminals worthy of execution in the most barbaric, tortuous, sick ways that you can imagine. Why? Because we made a God of the pleasure. We want fruitless sex, impotent sex, sterile sex. We want to use our bodies, our, our parts and our bodies not to, in love, within marriage, generate life, but to use other like an object to give me my lusty pleasure. That's what we've reduced ourselves to. We're different than the animals, right? We're a higher being. We can think. We can reason. We've returned to being animal, haven't we? We no longer control our members. We're just in heat all the time. But even the animals are better than us, aren't they? They just generate life. We all have rabbits, chickens, and we don't even have that dignity anymore. Now, we need to get into these things to highlight what sin has done to us. This is how far sin has twisted us. We're created with far higher dignity than animals, and we've reduced ourselves willfully in our sin underneath them. And the reason that you need to see that is so you can see how incredibly generous God is in giving us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and making us new through Christ. That's the kind of life-giving God he is. Though we reject and twist and abuse this gift of these bodies and these parts and this generating of life, God is so gracious in sending his Son to die, to plant a seed with his blood that results in the eternal life of his precious bride, his church. If you go back to the beginning, Adam and Eve, did they have to earn anything in Genesis 1 and 2? Did they merit anything? It's all a gift, right? From the beginning. I mean, did God sit down somehow with Adam and Eve, before they were made, and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Would you like to live? No, he just made everything and made it perfectly and then made them and said, here, it's all yours. Everything. You're my kings and queens over it all. It's all for you. It's all gift. It's all grace. It's all generated by God, given to us. This tells us what sin is. What is sin? It's a refusal to receive God's gift gratefully and instead want to grasp it, have it on our own terms, take it rather than receive it. And isn't that what we do now with each other's bodies? We take. We don't receive as a gift. We grasp. We use. This is what sin has done to us. God shows us even more grace. Even though we've done this and continue to do this and think like this, God didn't withhold his son, but sent him to give us 
life anew. But that new life that he gives us in Christ, that is the forgiveness of our sins, that is the new life spiritually, that is reconciliation with him, should cause us then to think differently about each other's lives. It should cause you to think differently about yourself and your body and your parts and others and their bodies and their parts. To want to think again like God thinks to evaluate each other and these gifts totally new. This is what it means to be a Christian. You reject what is old and you everything becomes new and different. We repent and we're sad and sick of what we were and we are so grateful to God that we are no longer those things. We no longer think like that. He's freed us, washed us, cleansed us, made us his children again, giving us new life. But that new life comes with new ways of thinking and living. And is there any way more needed, any place this needs to be more applied than to who you are as a man, who you are as a woman, what marriage is, even what your parts are for in that marriage? See, Christianity, the truth of the Bible, needs to be applied from here to here, head to toe. Every part brought to him for his glory, given for that which he has made it. Now, typically when I talk like this, you all are doing good work. In your minds, you're thinking things like, does that mean I'm supposed to have as many kids as we could possibly have? Well, before you ask that, ask yourself another question. Do I love life like God loves life? Do I love children like God loves children? Do I see them as the incredible blessing with which God gives them? Do I have a view of life as generous or do I have a view of life as contraceptive? Another way to say it is, let's say you think about contraceptions. Let's just say all you had was the Bible. And you wanted to read the Bible to understand whether or not it is right to use contraceptives. In marriage, it is wrong always outside of marriage. If you were to read the Bible and be honest, could you make any argument at all that you should use contraceptives? No, not a bit. Not at all. (laughs) Could you make a solid argument that you should always, always give yourself in sexual union marriage to generate life? You could make a pretty strong argument there biblically. Right? You agree with me? Right? It's very clear. So then why do we have such a contraceptive mentality? Why does every young couple think at marriage that they should not have children and then every once in a while try to have a kid? That's the mentality that everybody in our culture goes into in marriage. Why? Because of sin. Because we don't see God as life-giving, generous, generating, We don't understand these parts that he's given what they're for anymore. We lack the faith. We're so scared. We believe the world's ways of thinking. Don't want to let our Christianity seep into that area of our lives. Why? Because we want the pleasure. We don't want the life. So let me apply this specifically in a few ways. First, Uh, parents, 
we need to talk with our kids about these matters, about marriage, what it's for, sex within marriage. And the place to start is with the purpose for which God made your body as a man, your body as a woman, and those genital parts, those what we sometimes would call private parts. They need to understand that they have a God-given purpose and function because the world is catechizing them in what those parts are for. And what the world is saying is that those parts are just mainly to take pleasure from others, that everybody else is an object and all of their parts are just to serve their pleasure. That's the world's catechism. And do you know what it does? It totally destroys their humanity. It just makes them pieces of meat. This is the great gift of biblical Christianity to the world. It sees people as incredibly dignified and worth love and sacrifice because we're made in God's image and we're made to generate life. And so your kids are going to need to be taught these things and start with why God made them. Start with the God of life. Start with looking at all of it. One of the bummers is no, nobody's raised on farms anymore. And you saw this all the time. Mommy, what are they doing? They're generating life. They're doing what God gave them to do. So that's one. Second, we do need to consider contraception. Should we? Should Christians use contraception? Have you even considered that? That's where I would start. Make it a question that you aren't sure of. Don't make it an assumption that you are very sure of. Everybody does it. And everybody fornicates. Everybody looks at pornography. Do you see any connection at all between the legalization and pervasive permissiveness of contraception and the world that Pastor Marx prayed about that so troubles you? Do you see any connection at all between the thinking, the worldly thinking that everybody should contracept their fruitfulness and the rise in divorce, the rise in broken homes, the rise in aborted children, the rise in promiscuous sex, the rise in homosexuality. I told you last year at this time in 1930, uh, the first Christian denomination, Anglicans, legalized or allowed for contraception in very specific instances. One of their numbers said that if you uh, contracept regular sex, you'll have no basis for which to oppose homosexuality. He's right. So do you see any connection between this world that you are so troubled with and that? You should. Third, use what we've talked about to ask God to change how you look at other people. What are you for? What are they for? Mainly we can say, they are not for your lust. They are not given a body for you to, you know, like just look at and arouse yourself over. This is, look at Adam and Eve. They were naked and not ashamed. Why? Because they had no fear of being beheld for arousal. They, They just had no 
no potential, or at least no right there. Adam wasn't looking at her as a piece, an object. There's no shame. There's, that's not what they were for. They were seeing each other. They were seeing, beholding the image of God in the other. They were knowing themselves by knowing the other. God didn't give these bodies and these parts for you to pleasure yourself, but to see the dignity and worth and beauty and to love. The key, particularly men, but this is true for women, particularly young men, to defeating lust and self-pleasure and all of it is to learn to look at women, not as objects. This is what the world is teaching you. She's just an object. And women, you have a big part in this. Don't dress just like an object. Don't give yourselves before marriage as if you're just an object. Don't teach men that. Now, it's not your fault. I'm not saying that. It's our responsibility. But young men, do not train yourself to look on women as objects. So get rid of pornography. There is no such thing as premarital sex, right? There's just non-marital sex. And if you go into marriage with a non-marital understanding of sex and sexuality, you'll just carry that right into marriage. You're teaching yourself outside of marriage how to view marriage and how to view women. And so, young men, you have to fight this. You have to do the hard work of taking yourself in hand by God's grace, pleading with him for grace, and not view women like that. Women... You have a body that screams to all of creation, you were made to conceive and nurture life. Men in our bodies, it's not so obvious. Men constantly think and talk about, we um, we have to prove our manhood. There's no such similar thing for women. Why? Because it's obvious. It's a good gift God gave you to nurture, to conceive and nurture life. It shapes everything about you. Don't let the world lie to you there. Rejoice in it. Love it. It's a glorious gift God has given you. There are more ways to do that than within marriage and procreating. Of course, women will always nurture life, even if they can't conceive it. Don't let the world lie to you here. Let me then lastly apply this to those of you who are in real difficulty right now. God is a God of life, right? Life. And you saw in Genesis 1 and 2, he doesn't do it on a small scale. (laughs) It's big and full and bursting immediately. This is, I think, one of the lies of evolution. As if it just slowly, incrementally, over billions of years, got a little, little, little more. No, it's like... Boom! Billions and billions of organisms, all with the ability to make more. Quickly! What does that mean for your misery? Your loss? Your trial? Your affliction? That weight? That darkness? That oppressiveness that comes when circumstances in life are like death? What does it mean? It means that you can trust that God will bring life. You can trust that God is the God who redeems the years that the locusts have eaten. I don't mean it'll be easy. I don't mean that by hearing these words, suddenly everything will be cheery for you and you'll never 
be down in the pit again. I mean that the one thing you need more than anything is a view of God, is a God who is abundant and generous with life. That as Pastor Mark prayed, you would lift your eyes to him from whence your help comes. Isn't that the rest, the, te- uh, the testimony of the Bible? What does God do immediately after Adam and Eve sin? He does what every Godfather, good father does. He disciplines them. And they know what he does? He covers them. He cares for them. He gives them the gift of children, more life. He redeems. He fixes what's broken. He makes straight what's bent. So as you see the generous abundance of God in Genesis 1 and 2, apply it to your life, to your difficulties, to your pain. He is a God who redeems life. This is including your sin. Is he generous with us in our sin? He shed the blood of his only son. His only begotten son that he's been eternally generating for all time. He didn't withhold him. He gave him. So the first thing we see in scripture about God is he is a God of abundant life. And we're created in that image. Let's pray. Father, help us. We see here how we've returned to the dust and to the muck and to the mire in this area of our lives. We all feel the guilt and shame of how we have misused others and their bodies and our own. Father, teach us to not despair there. Teach us to have hope in you there. Teach us to flee to your son there. But also teach us to embrace with faith the goodness of the truth in your scripture that you are a generous, generating God and that all of creation screams this, including us and our bodies. Grant us true repentance over our worldly ways of thinking. Help us with all the questions that come up here. Help us to be patient with these questions, with each other's questions, but give us a heart and a mind to simply want to embrace what the Bible says and everything else be gone. Give us that kind of simplicity and childlikeness of faith. Mostly, God, help us to love you, who is the giver of life. Help us to love life, to love children, to not be so quick to be irritated, uh, to not be thinking so much of less of them but more of them. And we do thank you for the many who have been given children in our conceived and bearing them. God, give them grace, particularly in the younger years, and help us to be helpful as a church. God, teach us above all else to love you. There is none like you. There is none who proceeds such love from that creates so many amazing and good things. And so help us to raise our hearts to you who is so generous. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.